On September 8th of 2015, the first episode of Set Lusting Bruce was released. To celebrate our anniversary month, I plan to put out a new episode every day this month. If you're not part of our Patreon group, please think about supporting the podcast by making a small monthly donation. Everyone who joins gets a personal thank you card from me and a Set Lusting Bruce sticker. During this month, I'd love to get some new reviews on iTunes and other podcast players. If you haven't rated the podcast before, please go to wherever you get your podcast and leave a rating, hopefully five star, and let people know why you love the podcast. Hope you enjoy this month of episodes. And now on to the show. My, my first introduction to Bruce was born in the USA and that, uh, you know, it was all the rage. Everybody was listening to it. It was all over the radio. And then, of course, his, the second one or whatever, uh, or I think it was the second one, uh, Glory Days, which I love, you know. And so I remember it was playing on the radio and, and my mom, she's in the kitchen doing dishes and I'm, you know, being devious in the other room. And right in the middle of the song where it goes, da, 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 da. Dun, 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 woo. And I, I grabbed the, the knob of the stereo and turned it up, scared the shit out of my mother. And I heard her, something going and all she said, what the hell was that? And she saw me running from the stereo. And I'll never forget that. And I told her that today and she was killing herself laughing. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Set Lusting Bruce, your podcast all about Bruce Springsteen, his music, and mostly his fans. I am your host, Jesse Jackson. We are getting off the Bruce train, though I'm sure he will come up as he normally does. And we're talking a little Fleetwood Mac. We're talking to another podcaster and a lot of other topics. Ryan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Appreciate it, Jesse. Great to be here. Tell us a little about yourself. I'm from uh, South Louisiana in a little swamp town called Dulac, uh, right on the edge of uh, the Gulf of Mexico. It's probably half been and out of the water now with all the hurricanes we've had in the last couple of years. I haven't been down there in a while, so I'm afraid. But I grew up there and moved to New Orleans after high school. And I've always been a writer. That's always been my main focus in life. I've been doing it since third grade. And it just exploded, I think, once I moved to New Orleans. Very stimulating town full of other writers and things like that. Lived there for 20 odd years or whatever. And now I went out to Mississippi for a little while. And now I'm back in Louisiana just promoting my 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 third book. Yeah, so I'm excited to talk about that. I'm looking forward to visiting. We talked a little bit about my history in Louisiana before we hit record. I absolutely know where you're coming from. We (laughs) will spend some time talking about New Orleans. But let's go back to the beginning. So you mentioned growing up a small town in Louisiana. What kind of music was your parents listening to? What were you listening to as a child? My parents were huge music aficionados. I I can't tell you how many times I can remember being left with babysitters. And I had older cousins. They would babysit us, very close family, Um, being left with my cousins. So my parents can go see ZZ Top and Led Zeppelin and James Taylor, all these different people. 
And they've always been that way. And they would always have their friends over playing cards and smoking a little this and listening to all these different bands, Journey, Ariel Speedwagon, Fleetwood Mac, and all these other great ones. And when I was about four or five, I can recall them bringing me the little record play that would do the small little LPs. And I remember getting Elton John, Diana Ross, Culture Club, all the stuff from Sesame Street. <laughs> so I had a great record collection before I was even four. That's awesome. What's the time frame in this? That I'm. This is all my first five years on Earth. So what time frame is that? I'm trying to picture. Oh, oh, oh the years. This is around. I was born in 78. Okay. So would, yeah, between that and, and 80. Okay. Absolutely. And I have a crazy good memory. I could still remember things when I was three and four, and I could still hear the the shuffling of the cards when they would play and listening to Journey. And I, for some reason, when Loving, Touching, Squeezing would come on, apparently I, wherever I was, I would come fly into the living room and just like spin around slowly to it. So <laughs> it was hypnotizing. I have... Not that memory, but I do have a memory. I when when my dad was stationed in Fort Knox, this was after he had gone to Vietnam. We lived there for two or three years, and wow. and I remember that they would have people come to the house, and and a lot of cigarette smoke, a lot of guitars, <laughs> and uh, a lot of singing. Just yeah, you yeah. take one, and it it that brings me happy memories. Oh, the yeah. ideas of doing that. I love that. And I'm a little sad we don't do that anymore. Every once in a while, my brother-in-law will bring his guitar. Mm -hmm. And I and I wish that we had that more musical talent to do that, to oh, sit there. That's pretty good. Yeah. So did you, it sounds like you embraced your parents' music. You didn't have a rebellious phase? No. See, my mom, she, when my parents divorced when I was about six or seven and I went off with her, when uh, my mom, she was a single mom and she listened to everything and she really fell into the hair bands of the eighties, Poison and Metallica. So she listened to all the good stuff that you would rebel with. Yeah. And she was the one doing it. Funny. Uh, she dated this guy who eventually became her second husband and they were in a motorcycle club. So she, I got to listen to all the cool stuff. So it was, what else was I going to rebel with? Madonna? Yeah. I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> you would have discovered country, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Christian rock, man. I would. Yeah, I guess. It. Yeah. <laughs> so, talk to me about. Did you, as you started though, reaching teenage years, high school, you expanded your what kind of music were you liking then? What this is right? This would middle eighties, late eighties, right? Late eighties for your team, as I'm thinking. Teens would be more 90s for me. Yeah, definitely that I hit the grunge age right at the right time. Okay. So I was definitely listening to Pearl Jam and Nirvana, Green Day, people like that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I The year I think the year before I graduated, no doubt came out with Tragic Kingdom. And it was that was probably the one CD I think I bought more than six times because every I, it was constantly stolen <laughs> everybody yeah. loved that album people that didn't even want to admit it loved sky rock would take it sure and also i had a listen uh, uh my mom of course she was big into all that so i listened to it and i was a huge fan of wallflowers i used to love jacob dylan okay yeah oh yeah just a huge variety of different things meatloaf had come back again yeah i don't pin gillette tells the story that if you ask Jacob Dylan who's his favorite Beatle, 
He says, George let us get away with more stuff when he babysit. (laughs) Paul was more stricter. He said, Jacob Dylan has a different perspective on this than we do. (laughs) Man, that's fantastic, though. I mean, yeah, I don't know if that's a true story. It's just, but I want it to be true so bad, right? I I can see George Harrison being that way. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, it's awesome. Where did, where did you go to college? Where did you go to school? Mm-hmm. I eventually went to Delgado Community College in uh, City Park, New Orleans. Yes. Um, which it's funny. I I was I remember when the iPod came out, and I was actually given one. My mom was given one. She had uh, only bad thing she's she doesn't evolve with the technology. So someone gave it to her. She gave it to me. I'm like, are you serious? And so yeah. I remember taking the bus because I always lived downtown in the French Quarter. I've lived there for years. And yeah. I would take the bus there and, oh my God, I would pump so much music back and forth just to drown out the bus noise. But sure. um, there wasn't a day I wasn't with that damn thing in my pocket when going to school. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, between classes there, I listened to music. I wrote tons of short stories. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once, new quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. I always like to talk about this when I have a writer on the show. We're... Was your family a big reader? Were you always a big reader growing up? I was. My okay. parents, no, not at all. They didn't even okay. go to the movies. 
I think that comes from, we had the property we lived on. My aunt, my, my dad's older sister, she lived in front of us. Now she was a huge reader and she certainly was a huge movie watcher. She was one of the few people that had HBO when it just came out. Okay. <laughs> so we got to go see movies without commercials and oh my God, yeah. we go to oh. Aunt Darla's house and she had it. And, uh, but yeah, no, I, I never was around it as far as like family having it, but I think they noticed from an early age I was reading. I was I knew how to read before I got to kindergarten because my older cousins, the ones that babysit me while my mom were having great times at concerts, they read to me and it stuck, it snowballed. I think that was the seed that kind of started as far as being a writer. If mm -hmm. they would have had the hindsight, they'd been like, oh, yeah, this guy's going to be a writer. I don't think nobody thought that. I certainly wouldn't have thought that. But, uh, oh, yeah, I, I collected books and I got them for Christmas and my birthday. So, absolutely. What were you reading? I might the first thing I can remember reading and I bought a copy a couple years ago and I was super excited. It was uh, a little golden book, which of course we always get the little golden books. The first one I can ever remembering and just being like, wow, and could not be without it was Bugs Bunny's Carrot Machine. Okay. It was the coolest little golden book. And I, I bought a copy a couple years ago and it was like revisiting the past. It was fantastic. I, I loved Around the World in 80 Days. I still it's still the one of two of my favorite books and i buy multiple copies wherever i see a different type of copy i buy it because i it, it's something that i've always loved loved did, Jules Byrne. did you see the david Tennant version that was on last year no okay no. I, i'm oh. a huge fan of the david niven one that won best picture okay. and I, we'll just leave it at that <laughs> okay so you were not interested in seeing a remake huh no you're not now if it was a fully imax film i would love to see that that would be fantastic yeah i'm a big doctor who fan so if tenet's in it i'm oh, yeah. in and oh, yeah, uh, of course, of course. yeah absolutely no disrespect to tenet no absolutely <laughs> what's the other book the never-ending story okay absolutely it was out of print for a long time it's a german book i remember seeing the movie at a cousin's house and from then on of course, they explained it to me, oh, the book, we got to find the book. And we can never, we didn't have internet sure. in the 80s and all that. But yeah. had I known to be able to find it, because it was a very hard book to find. But that movie intrigued me. I was stunned by it. I was extremely moved by it. The first moment, years later, when I finally got my hands on it and I saw it in a library, I begged the librarian to give it to me because I wanted that yeah. book so bad. Eventually, I got my own copy. And that one, too, I have several different types of copies, German and English. Mm -hmm. yeah. So... It sounds, did you always have the itch to tell stories? Yes. It's a snowballing effect. It's starting with, when I was able to go to my aunt's house, we were able to watch a lot of movies that probably a lot of kids were not allowed to watch. I can remember at three years old watching Creepshow yeah. and not being scared, but watching other people be scared. And I thought that was fascinating that they would they would get it be all riled up and I'm watching it and I was never scared of those movies. I saw those from three and on. And but I think the power of the word for me when I realized, wow, writing is something. Someone's writing these books, someone's writing something some you can say something on the page and still get the same feeling like from a movie. And I my mother, she had bought me the illustrated children's classics, which I think they're still printing. Sure, I think so, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I love those books. She had given me Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson. Okay. And I guess she thought it was harmless being a children's illustrated class. Right. And it scared me to death. Huh. And I couldn't believe. I'm like, wait a minute. I just read this. It was like a movie was playing in my mind. And I think from there and then right around that time, and I'm going to say I was probably about eight or nine at this time, around third grade, 
And I had written a story as an assignment. And again, I wound up being the, the writer who had the story in front. Of the teacher calls out all these, she's bringing all the papers back to the groups and all that. And she calls me out and she says, Ryan wrote a story. I want to read it to you all. And I'm like, oh, crap. <laughs> but they loved it. They stood up and cheered. I thought that was great. So I think from then on, that was it. It was like, yep, this is it. And, um, One of the things you talked about is you spent a lot of years in New Orleans. New yeah. Orleans is one of my wife and I's favorite places to visit. Wonderful city. It, it was, I, I made this joke earlier this year, James Taylor and Jackson Brown were touring. And yeah. the tickets in Fort Worth were really expensive. And just out of curiosity, I looked in New Orleans and you could get much better seats at a cheaper price. I went to Linda. I said, hey, do you want to, we'll go see James Taylor and Jackson Brown. We'll make a long weekend out of it. Yeah, that's fine. And to save $200, we spent three grand, right? <laughs> to go to New Orleans and stuff. Uh, after the fact, that I went, oh, yeah. yes, yeah. Um, how much, I, one of the things that one of our best vacations was uh, a couple of years ago, um, we went and we got a hotel on Frenchman Street oh, yeah. and spent the long weekend there. We never got to the quarter. We never, we just spent it all on Frenchman Street and was like, this is amazing. A totally I, different side of New Orleans, right? I, li I lived on Frenchman for eight years, right in the corner of Royal and Frenchman, right next to the yeah. Manny Brasserie. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And just so much live music and just it was just a really wonderful thing. So how much has the spirit of New Orleans affected your love of music and your writing? Oh, if anything, it brought me to jazz. Okay. I think if I never went to New Orleans, I probably would have never discovered or swing for that matter, because. Right. In New Orleans, you can hear this. You can hear any type of music any time of the day and night. It's 24 hours. It's all over the place. That's something because you go to these other cities and it's here and there. But in New Orleans, it's encouraged to block the street or parade down it and things like that. It's just part of the culture. And I, I always see these like these gypsy swing bands and these young kids dancing to it. And man, that's exciting. And that's how I really discovered what swing was because it was never introduced to me prior to that. And in New Orleans, you can go just walk straight <laughs> and you'll go into a music club that's playing old time jazz, ragtime and all that. And I love that. And to me, it really opened the field for me to to just different types of music. And the fact that just everybody listens to music. I've lived in places all over the, the United States where dead silent houses. I'm like, you guys aren't playing music. And I, I, I have to. And I guess I just bring that part with me. So one of our favorite experiences when we'd visit New Orleans is O'Flaherty's, which was in the quarter before yeah. before Katrina. Yeah. And and you could go with our underage son. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. and for those of you who've it's now closed, Danny had to shut it down. As a lot of businesses with Katrina were in the quarter, you're working with razor thin margins. But when you would walk in to the left would be a standard bar, but to the right was their listening room. And I wish, Ryan, this was at every club mm -hmm. anywhere, is they had this huge sign explaining the tradition of a singer and the respect you gave them. And no one talked in that room. 
Wow. It was just amazing. And I think about that when I'm at Poor David's Pub or these other little clubs that I go to see someone. I want to go, okay, did you not read the sign? Beautiful building. I actually have a, uh, I had a ghost experience in that building one time. Oh, tell me. And what a surprise. It was on St. Patty's Day of all days. I had yeah. some friends from Nashville come and we went there because it, it was one of the places I always went to. They had best potato soup. Oh my gosh. And we're sitting at the bar. And of course, the bathrooms are always, especially in these old buildings, they'll be in the back in the quarters. And it's always this dark corner somewhere in the back. And when I approached the door, I just felt like I was sucker punched. It just felt my stomach just suddenly soured. And it was just a weird, odd feeling. And when I went into the bathroom and I'm standing at the urinal and I heard, hey, you, hey, you, it's what it sounded like. And I'm, I'm from New Orleans, man. I'm going to turn around. I'm a knife. You like, you better come at me. So if they're in, you're very alert in New Orleans, very <laughs> lovely, but dangerous place. But I'm looking through under the stalls to make sure I'm not being messed with. And when I turned around again, I felt the fingers grab my shoulder and I jerked like that. And I went back and the bartender and she's. She, she had this expression like, uh-huh, I know exactly what happened because apparently this ghost of this lady back there, she tends to tap all the men that go back there. And it has a couple of great stories. And funny where you mentioned O'Flaherty's in my new book, there's a scene where one of my characters actually goes there and the other character meets him and they're talking O'Flaherty's and she actually tells him the story of the haunting. So that's actually mentioned in my book. Uh, I, I used nice. to love O'Flaherty's. Yeah, I did too. I, I, I love that. And What's beautiful, like that weekend we went, one of my favorite memories is we were at the Spotted Cat, I think, right on Fremont oh, Street. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's so we're there. It's in the afternoon. And this couple of musicians had played and they had talked about they weren't regularly banned. They were just friends that liked to hang out and they were playing and <laughs> they're passing the hat between sets and She's smiling and she's got her little bucket for us to put in tips. And she's like, is there anything you want to hear? And so my wife rolls her eyes and says, go ahead. And the <laughs> singers, what? What is it? I saw I'm a huge Bruce Springsteen fan. And <laughs> I'm just resisting the urge to ask you to play something for Bruce. And she says, oh, Atlantic City is one of my favorite songs. Do you want me to do Atlantic City for you? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I and I will send you the video. I will send you the video. That's she did awesome, it. Enough. Yeah. yeah. And so my wife rolled her eyes. I can't believe it. You asked. And she wanted to play it. So yeah. So let's talk about the new book. Or let's actually how did you decide you've talked about stories, you talked about things. What finally got you where you knew you needed to tell these stories and publish them? When I moved into the French Quarter, this was around like 2001-ish, that it's people go in the French Quarter and they look at it as a place to go drink and be crazy and all that. But to me, it was a historic mecca of just storytelling. There's everywhere I went, there was a plaque, there's a tour and all these stories. And I think listening to all the tours and all that, and I was a concierge at that time. And so I heard all the information and man, how, as someone who's always been around New Orleans his whole life, I, I think something happened to where I just had this immense respect for it, of the history and all that. Because all these people on Bourbon and they're all, they, I guess if you're not told it, you won't know it. You'll walk past this building and not know so-and-so was murdered by her lover in this building and you'll never know. And, and I get that. And I think reading the haunted history books and stuff that was part of the job at the time i started getting a lot of insight and i'm like man that, i was telling this to friends in different states and all that and i'm like oh it was always like you got another story you got another new orleans story i'm just like oh man i gotta write this stuff down you know? okay 
And so what was your first book? Uh, it was called Wake the Devil. It's, I, I again, I was re reading through all these, I, when I was reading a lot of great New Orleans writers at the time. I've always been huge Anne Rice fan, huge. I've been reading her since I was 12. And I think being that close, even closer to her, I started collecting all her books and rereading them. And also a friend of mine introduced me to Poppy Z. Bright, who was another horror writer at that time. I think he's transitioned and now he doesn't write anymore. But I love those books as well. And so it was a combination of all that. And I always saw, and my book is based on the true story of the Axeman murders of 1918. And he was a footnote in a lot of other books that I was reading about nonfiction, the histories of yeah. New Orleans and things like that. And I would ask a lot of the locals, the older locals, I'm like, have you heard this? Not that I expect them to be alive in 1918, but no one must have heard about this. And they would have no clue what I was talking about. And this is back in 2003, 2004. And so I decided to go to this building that was in the French Quarter. Gorgeous. You probably know where it's at. It's right on side of where K. Paul's restaurant was. It's to the right. Okay. It's a great looking building. It's right across from the Wildlife and Fishery. Well, I think it's the Supreme Court now. That big, beautiful white marble building right in the middle. It's, it's right across sure. the street. And it's called the Williams Research Center. And it's literally everything you want to know <laughs> is on microfish there. And so I, I started doing my own investigation. And the more I dug into it, the more I was like, wait, that happened? Because you know, I'm reading all these papers and all these articles about this guy who was murdering, systematically murdering Italian grocers. And then all of a sudden his MO had changed for whatever reason. It was a maybe a grocer, but he wasn't Italian. Maybe he was an Italian, but not a grocer. So he baffled the police for years. They didn't know what this guy's deal was. And I think what launched the, the, for me to, to to a book was there was a passage where these witnesses, a few of them that lived that didn't get the axe, um, would describe him as having no face. They said, what does he look like? What's his features? And they could not describe him. And as they were almost like petrified. So I was like, man, that's wild. And we still don't know who he was. They have no clue what his, why he did it, who he was, where did he go? And why did he just stop? Or did he stop? And that it's I basically I did a historical fiction. I took a fictional character, a young Italian boy, appropriately, and uh, I, he basically walks you through the events of of the the um, between 1918 and 1919. It was almost like a full year of just chaos in the city. New Orleans' own version of a Jack the Ripper, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And he's actually mentioned that he had wrote a letter to the to the Times Picayune, which was the big paper. Yeah. And, he addressed it same very similarly. So a lot of that was a lot of talk about that. Wow, could it be? Maybe could it be Jack the Ripper? So there was a yeah. lot of talk. Maybe that's who it was too. Oh yeah, it was wild. Yeah. That sounds good. Oh, that sounds good. What's the name of the book? Wake the Devil. Oh, sounds good. It's a catchphrase one character says to another. So okay. when you read it, you'll understand. <laughs> okay, good. And so what's your latest book? You mentioned that it, you've got uh, a scene in O'Flaherty. So talk, what's the latest That's, book? So Wake the Devil, the first book I, it was the first book I published. Okay. What I did is I rewrote it because okay. the first time I did it, I felt like I didn't do enough and there. Okay. You know, I, I hurried it. So what I did is I rewrote it. So this okay. is like a, um, a better edition of the first one. Sure. Um, different cover and everything. A lot of stuff I wanted to add. There's a scene. Uh, where one of the characters is talking to another one in okay. O'Flaherty's. Okay. And it, little things like that I missed, I think, in the first book because I, okay. I was in such a rush to get it done, and I was never satisfied with the result. In the meantime, between those, 
I have a book called Ravish, which is a fictional story that also takes place in the French Quarter. It's not necessarily related to the history of New Orleans, but I do mention a lot of stuff because it is mm-hmm. about this creature that I created, this incubus creature from Mesopotamia. And he's part of this species, this race of demons that I made a whole mythology around. And he goes to present day New Orleans and just causes chaos between a circle of friends. And there's a couple of scenes where the friends are talking, the characters, and they'll mention things that happened in New Orleans that were odd. Man, it's been odd. All these things like this guy comes around and they're like, God, these, all these crazy murders, man, it reminds you of this. And I throw yeah. in some factual stuff. <laughs> yeah. What is it about the macabre that draws you to write about it? That's a good question. I think it's the sensation of it. I, starting from those early years watching those movies, a lot of my friends were reading, watching Disney. I never watched Disney. I never watched those shows. I was watching Amityville Horror and Nightmare on Elm Street. And I think the reaction, just to see people just so scared about it. And uh, I love that. I thought that to write something. And I remember seating, watching, I think it was Child's Play, the first Chucky. Oh my God, that was thrilling. <laughs> And watching with, I'm watching on TV with my mom. And I remember her telling me, she said, who the hell writes stuff like that? What kind of mind, what sick mind writes things like that? And I'm this guy. (laughs) (laughs) And I love that. I love that. I can't wait till one day somebody says, and they're looking at one of my books or movies and they're saying, who wrote that crap? And that's a payoff. But I think it's the surrounding. I I was consistently surrounded by it. And I guess Mm -hmm. it just, it found me, honestly, I think. Yeah. Okay, that sounds great. All right, I'm going to skip for a moment. One of the things we talked about is you shared a, a wonderful um, email before we booked, but you did talk a lot about a lot of your musical influences, but you specifically mentioned Fleetwood Mac and Stevie Nicks, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. So tell me a little bit about when did you first discover them and what about them spoke to you? That goes back to the days when my parents were playing cards. That was my dad's friend. He was a huge Fleetwood Mac fan, so I always heard it. Yeah. And I remember when I was, like I said, I can remember everything. Good God. I can remember being a, ch- a young child watching the video with her and Tom Petty. You right. know, stop dragging my heart around. And I, it, that image of her, and I remember, God, that woman is so beautiful. Who is that? I can never, no one ever told me. And I remember she was the lady who sang with the square microphone. That's how I knew her, because that was always Stevie's preference, you know, that specific mm-hmm. microphone. But she was the only one to ever see do that. And I guess it's it came back when I moved back to the French Quarter. I remember also when I was younger, the song Gypsy came out in, in the mid which is my favorite song. I love Gypsy. And it's, I remember driving with my dad down St. Charles Avenue, which is the big, beautiful boulevard that cuts through uptown New Orleans with all the oak trees and the streetcar and the mansions. And we were driving down there one day, and I think we were going to Audubon Zoo or something like that. And I remember that song debuting on the radio that week or whatever, and I heard it, and I could still like, and I remember my dad going, yeah, Stevie Nicks. And I'm like, who? (laughs) And I think, I guess I put it together years later. I'm like, oh, that was the lady with the square microphone. Her name is Stevie Nicks. And when I moved back to the quarter, it's, I I mean, I, again, I found it again. And I I have been a huge Stevie fan. I've I've seen them several times, her and uh, Solo and uh, Fleetwood Mac. And I, I, that's got to be hands down my favorite music. And I, again, I think that's also childhood memories. So every time I hear it, it brings me back to a good time. You know how music, music does that. You know? It does. Yeah, music mm-hmm. is a time travel device. It is. I always ask this question when I have a Bruce fan on and I preface <laughs> it. The amount of times 
you've seen a band perform is not a fair barometer of how big of a fan you are. But you've mentioned you've seen them. Do you count how many times? Five times. Okay. Five times. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Besides the feeling of history and the remembering your childhood, what else about their music speaks to you, do you think? I think it's Stevie's lyrics, for one. Yeah. They're very interesting. She obviously is a poet of some sort. Yeah. She always was like that. That was always a thing for her. And I guess that's definitely something I like listening to it. And that weird connection with a tune, not necessarily the words, but the tune itself, the piano, the bass, something about it lures you to it and go, God, I love that song. And I find that they have made so many that I was like, God, I like that one too. Oh man, I like that one too. And especially in New Orleans, when you're around a lot of witchy people and would be vampires and stuff like that, music resonates. They all, y'all listen to that and lifelong rumor she was a witch and things like that. And that all ties in and it all reinforces it all for me. Yeah. It's, it's the feeling of the music. I'm just always in the mood for it. I've, I've heard gypsy. I can't even count. And it's still fresh to me and just not, and also just her herself. She's such an interesting person. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a glow about her. Do how has their music influenced your writing? Mm. I think for me, I always feel, and I, I would listen to certain songs when I would write certain stories. And I think because the quality is so great and I don't want to ever write something that's shoddy, that's something that yeah. wants to resonate. It's one of those bands whose music, Stevie's music especially, just resonates yeah. with you and stays with you. And I want that. I would love that. I don't want somebody to come yeah. away and go, oh, that, that's, you throw down 30 bucks for a novel, man. You, you better damn well be good, you know, worth, worth your time. I want that for my audience. I don't want them to come away going, oh, that wasn't enough. And I think that's why I rewrote it anyways. But it's that tie with New Orleans, I feel, with the music and making sure that I do it right. Sure. And I love that. Yeah. One of the topics you mentioned in Pulling the Curtain Back, we are both part of a group that kind of helps guests find hosts and hosts find guests. But you specifically mentioned sexuality and queer Mm -hmm. culture. I'm Mm -hmm. curious, why is that a talking point? It's something that's part of my life because I am gay myself. And it's something I've lived through. It's something I know. It's one of those groups I find and now I'm only speaking from when around when I was starting to go out and going into the clubs yeah. and starting to become and this is around when I'm like 19 and stuff. So we're talking like late 90s. I remember that, you know, always being especially in, in high school and elementary, that was a no, you didn't talk about that. And I knew I always had it. And I, I think, you know, a lot of people just did not of course, it's always been with us, but yeah, I remember in the 90s when around the time when the Matthew Shepard thing happened and Ellen had come out on her show, that was like this explosion of like, all right, that's it. Out of the closet. We're done. We're done fighting. We're done. And that's what I think it's it's something important to, especially now, because I find it's lost its way. But I would love for them, I just want, especially kids today, to know how lucky that you can go on a dating app and do that and things like that. Because even in my time, it was bad, but even worse in my, in my older friends' times, they tell me these horrible stories of living in the country and watch. One of my friends told me that he watched a friend of his get burned alive. Yeah. And that's crazy. That's crazy. And it's something I think that needs to come up now for me. I'm definitely no historian or expert on the subject itself because I, I never thought I was going to write 
gay characters. It's not something that I ever thought about. It just wasn't because it's so normal for me. All my friends, I have a huge mix of friends. Sure. And, so, and th- those friends never, they never batted two eyelashes. They didn't care. My my family, they don't, I never had a hard time with it, with them. It, it was no big deal. And so I, I never thought to write those kinds of characters, but I guess at some point it finds you because you're, you're writing about yourself. You're writing about this, sure. this, uh, this group that you're in, the subgroup in a subculture. So I, I wound up, uh, Ravish is surrounded by those kinds of characters. That's what Ravish is actually about. And uh, I was very scared of doing it for a long time. I, I didn't, like I said, I didn't really want to write about them because I felt like people were going to say, oh, of course he's going to. Yeah. But I, it came to me one day and I said, you know what? I have to do it. Yeah. And there's not a lot of good quality fiction in, in as far as LGBT right now. To me, it's almost a wide open market. So I feel like I, I can get in that right now. <laughs> um, so. Yeah. A couple of things that reminds me. One, Kevin Smith talked about his brother saying, I never see people like me, mm-hmm. people who are gay. And Terry Moore, who wrote Strangers in Paradise, an amazing comic book. And he talked about his cousin was gay and that same experience if i can get and if you don't want to do this i'll cut this out but i'm curious i did a i did very multiple episodes during pride month and i started with i have fans of the podcast like bella she discovered bruce springsteen because of streets of philadelphia and she was like she's here is this guy talking about right and so i've had guests who are a part of the community why is there so much anger, Ryan? Are people afraid? Are they angry? I'm a 64-year-old white guy. I was raised in a Southern Baptist home. And I and I don't understand the anger. The They're trying to kill us. They're trying to wipe us out. And like I said, that's a serious topic. And if you don't want to get to it, but I'd no, love to know your thoughts. No matter who I would represent, short, white, Cajun, gay. Yeah. There's always going to be someone that's going to be after you. I mean, right. It's just inevitable. I certainly don't strictly say the gay people have problems with this because certainly not. This country especially is, is so tied to religion. It's crazy how religious this country is. I have friends from Europe that have driven across the United States and they're shocked by billboards with Jesus on it and crosses in the street and they're just like flabbergasted. What the heck is that for? Yeah. Because it's they feel it's a private thing. You don't go out and throw it in people's right. faces. And the country, it's turning that way. It's trying to turn into this, this fully Christian country. And people are fighting back because, after all, the, the point of the country was to have freedom of religion. But I, I, anything that's new, anything that's different, of course, the first reaction, that goes back to medieval times. We say, no, yeah. we don't want that. So I think it takes a while to get in there and stuff like that. There's just a lot of a small margin of people that are just so stubborn and so set in their ways. They will do anything to cut whatever they feel is foreign out of their life. It's, and I've seen it. I've seen it. I want to applaud you because I believe stories matter. And I shared this with Terry Moore. I, I love don't know From you... Hell. From Hell is one of my favorite. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. the often you get stories that have characters that are different than you. And by learning their story, you it widens your heart. It opens your eyes that they may be different, but we're the same. Mm-hmm. So I applaud you for including that in your story. Oh, and okay. because I think that's important. 
I think being inclusive and showing different diversity is important. And so thank you for joining me. And we got serious for a moment. Uh, <laughs> no, so, that's great. Yeah. That's great. So what's next for you creatively? I have a couple of books that I'm going to do. Funny, we're talking about this. And again, was not planning on doing it, but I'm doing a sci-fi with gay characters. And it's a dark satire on the toxicity it's become today with technology and all that. So it's going to be really interesting. This is going to be a good book. Then I have something planned after that. I'm going to do a trilogy. There's Ravish is meant to be a trilogy. I'm already working on book two. And for Awake the Devil, I recently decided to do a series of books based on some of the most horrific incidences in New Orleans history. So there's a lot going on. There's a, <laughs> mm -hmm. a lot to write. So I'm keeping busy with that. I'm literally trying to get them out as fast as I can. Are you? Do you miss the quarter? Do you miss living yeah. in New Orleans proper? And yeah. I'm so close because it's only a 45 minute drive from where I'm at. But it's I'm watching on the news and I'm a little disappointed in how it's just going downhill so fast. And it's always been dangerous and crime ridden, but lately it's just too much. And yeah. I'm afraid for my friends that live there. I've had a lot of friends move out for that same reason. They're tired of their car being broken in every week. It's, that's really sad. That's really sad. It's such a great city and that it's just being so mismanaged. So that's why I wouldn't want to go back now um, and wait and see what happens. But uh, don't, uh, please don't let that, that stop you. If you have a vacation time to go there and you plan on going, go. It's an amazing place. But d just be wary. Yeah, yeah I, I think like any big city, you need to be smart and be mm -hmm. careful where you're going in the middle of the night, mm -hmm. late at night and be careful. But yeah, it's it is a city that I guess if you try, you can have a bad meal, but it's really <laughs> tough to have a bad yeah. meal. <laughs> oh, gosh, no. Yeah. And it's a dark city. It's not yeah. very well lit. They have the, yes. you know, the most archaic lighting system. Even the sewer system, the water system is archaic. They're still yeah. fighting. With, that's another reason it's still being fixed. And it's they they like it. And I, I for a time, I thought it was cute. But when you're in there and you have to deal with your water being shut off and electric being shut off, it's a pain in the butt. Yeah, you know, absolutely. But... <laughs> yeah, that's great. What have I, what haven't I asked you that I should have, Ryan? I'd like, I, I really would like to, you're talking about music and the influence on it. There's something I wanted to mention. I, ever since I can remember, I, being a movie person, I was always in love with movie scores. Okay. I love movie music. You can, you might not know who they are, but you know their themes. You might not know who John Williams is, but I guarantee you if I hum the Superman theme, you're going to know. Or exactly. Jaws or yes. Star yes, Wars. Exactly. You know? And I love those. And I, talking about music being an influence, in, when I was a teen, I was writing tons of screenplays. That's where I, that's why that's how I started. It went from short stories to screenplays. And I would, based on the theme or the feeling that I want, I would always play music i remember this sort of kids movie that i wanted to write and it had the feeling of almost like a mary poppins peter pan-esque feel to it so i would sure. play like edward scissorhands by danny elfman or hook by john williams and it helped me move you know it helped me get the rhythm if i was stuck sure and here we are years later for both of these books when i wrote ravish i actually made a soundtrack <laughs> i made a ravish soundtrack and i put 20 songs that i thought would relate to it and i also listened to one of my favorite scores of all time, which is Great Expectations by Patrick Doyle. I love Patrick Doyle's work. And uh, that's from the 1997 movie, 97, 98, something like that. Okay. And, and I remember listening to that and it gave me the feel because there'd be times when I would be stuck and music, boom, that's that was the solution. Let me play this and maybe, and all of a sudden you're listening to this music and, oh, you know what? And 
it would give me ideas. It would feed me every time. And even Wake the Devil, one of my favorite movies is From Hell, the, the Hughes Brothers movie with Johnny Depp and Ian Holm. Love that movie. Love, jealous as, as hell of, of that movie. <laughs> I wish I would have made it so beautiful. That score is by Trevor Jones. And I listened to that repeatedly doing Wake the Devil just to get the feels. As far as music influencing what you do, it's always been. It's always been. I can't be without it. I think it's helped my writing move along. It's definitely one of the biggest pushes, one of the biggest motivators. Yeah, I, I think that's fascinating. And I've had a couple of writers on that will talk about that, that themes and and in that mind to help them get into that mindset of the characters what's the character's favorite song and that helps me determine find the character's voice and such yeah that's pretty cool that's that's really nice i tell us again how to tell people how they can find you and how they can find your work yeah absolutely the best way to find me is i have on facebook if you type in ryan winter fan page i'm there you can find everything there because i love interacting with them that's i have a website it's being worked on but i love using Facebook because to me, it's a little bit more personable. People send me messages and I can answer them right back. Sure. Um, I've been doing a lot of uh, blogging on it to explain New Orleans history with Wake the Devil. I'm taking, because a lot of people ask me like, oh, the real people that were say murdered, the victims and all that, what they look like, what the store location that you're describing. So I, I went through all that. I'm going through that now. So I made a series of blog pieces that, that I brought pictures so you can see where it happened and what it looked like and things like that. I, my books are definitely on Amazon, and I have an author page in there as well. Also, Instagram, Ryan Winter Author. Yeah, that's probably the best ways to find me. <laughs> that's good. All right, guys, you got to go to the Facebook page. Like it. Reach out to them. Let them know you heard it on Set Lusting Bruce. Before I go, I got to ask you the Mary question, though. If you are a fan of Ryan's writing and you're checking out this podcast, thank you. We're I'm He has done you proud. I had so much fun talking to him. I end every podcast with what I call the Mary question. Jay Armstrong, who is a retired honors English teacher, but when he was teaching, he would give his class the lyrics to Thunder Road. They would explore it. They would talk about the themes of the lyrics, the uh, imagery Bruce paints, and then would ask the question at the end of this class, does Mary get in the car? So Ryan... That is your question. Does Mary get in the car at the end of Thunder Road? If she's from Louisiana, she probably was hesitant at first because they never leave the state. (laughs) (laughs) You can give them the best offer and they're like, no, it's home to them. And that's great. That's fantastic. So I think she probably was hesitant. So what I did is she texted me to come over and I'm like, bitch, get in the car. This guy guy is got, he's giving you the world. You need to get out of the state and go. So I basically forced her out to go. So that's why she went. (laughs) I love that answer. It's true. There is, I went to my like 40th high school reunion there in Lake Charles and most of the class were still living there. They're still living there, right? They got a job at the plant and they're now retiring. So uh, very few cousins that have left are still very few that have left the state. Yeah, it is. It's just very (laughs) different. Ryan, this was a blast. Thank you so much for spending time with me. I appreciate it. Hey, when you get the new book, reach out. Let's do this again. Okay. You bet. You bet. All right. Listeners go check out his Facebook page. Check out the Instagram Check it out on Amazon. So for now, we're going to ask you to be kind, be safe, and we'll talk to you soon. Goodbye. 
You just heard the fun talking, hard rocking, music loving, album ranking, fan thinking, joy spreading, lyric reading, story sharing podcast that is the one, the only, Settlesting Bruce. The theme for Settlesting Bruce was written by David Rosen, used by permission. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.